This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is August 29th, 2019, and this is episode 153. Politicoast is the BC politics podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. Most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple bucks a month at patreon.com slash politicoast. And a big thank you to all of our new and longtime patrons for your support. It's because of your generous support that we'll be able to keep up our regular release schedule as Ian goes on paternity leave. Any day now probably just not going to come in next week because shit's stressful <laughs> could be any day i'm Scott lindwell and i'm ian bushfield on today's show the latest evidence that this election's going to be just awful which is another reason i'm going to take off and we answer questions from the internet to fill content just the last week of august is really slow we've had generally busy summers yeah i actually went back and looked at what our last week of august's episode we managed to fill a full hour uh, at this point last year and as we record this right now there's no guarantee we're going to hit that because it's been a little bit of a slower week despite the lead up to election as always politicoast is in partnership with bc today british columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to bc politics sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the bc legislature delivered to your inbox every morning Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Let's kick it off. This is going to be the worst election. The news this week was largely politicians not saying things or hinting that they might not say things. Well, alternatively, saying things they've already said a bunch of times as they reannounced a bunch of spending commitments. It's the worst. The first big story was Justin Trudeau's team hinting that they might not turn up to some of the debates. Now, they've committed to the two official election commission debates that are what the liberals set up where you must be this tall to ride the ride and Maxime Bernier is like an inch short and is running polls right now. But everyone else will be at those. But there is, on September 12th, going to be a McLean's and City TV debate, which will have everyone except the People's Party and Bloc, I think. But the Libs are still on edge about it. They're on the fence a bit. It's early. Maybe they haven't figured out their calendar for September. I know I haven't. It's still a little weird, though. Like, you know, normally it's not a great look to be shying away from a debate. And I mean, the prime minister has, I think, more leverage to do that than anyone else, because if you don't have the prime minister there, it kind of drops the interest of a lot of people quite a bit. But at the same time, it's not a good look if you're the leader of the country that you don't want to have a debate in the middle of an election. And the same's holding true for the Monk debate that's being planned. Right now, Andrew Shear and Elizabeth May have confirmed it, and it sounds like Singh's team is finalizing their calendar and about to say yes to it, but there's no commitment at all from the Liberals. Now, I get being the front-runner and the current government, the less time you spend debating someone like Shear, the less attention he gets and the better it is for you, but I think you're still ultimately right that the trade-offs probably aren't that good for him. It's definitely not good to be litigating it in public. It, if it's kind of one of those back and forth in the background of, are we going to have this debate or not? It's one thing. But, you know, when it's, you know, having a major national headline attached to it, yeah, that's a, a bad look. And Trudeau's not that bad at debating. 
at least in 2015. Well, to be fair, the Conservatives set the bar so low when they said if he comes out with his pants on, he'll win the debate, which was mind-bogglingly bad strategy because you generally want to lower your own bar so it's easier to clear well, making your opponent look like a much better debater than they are, so they're judged more harshly. And for some reason in 2015, the Conservatives decided to flip that. They were going for the not-ready Yes, but the problem is when he work. managed to show up with his pants on, he, he kind of won the debate at that point. Well, and you look at the field this year, and the only person who's done a federal leaders debate is Elizabeth May. And she'll actually probably do pretty well Yeah, she generally time. does okay at them. It's She's been getting better. <laughs> she's had a lot of practice. It's the more off-stripped moments that we'll see. And whether or not she manages to stay on strip is going to be a, something to watch for. But yeah, she's the only one who has any real experience. Both Sheer and... Jamie are kind of untested in this. Well, and when they get into scrums, they go to talking points quickly. They don't, they kind of lose their humanity. Both of them are bad at answering questions. And so I do worry that neither of them will do great in a competitive debate. Now, they have debated, right? They've been on leadership debates, but those, I think the those NDPs... Those have all been like internal party debates. Well, and the NDPs was characterized as vigorous agreement, right? They're just kind of saying how true to the brand they'll be. And so trying to paint a starkly different vision of the country between these four is going to be worth watching. But I think only Trudeau and May can do that at this point. So yeah, Trudeau, get up there, do more debates. But the other person we didn't hear from this week until this afternoon was Andrew Scheer, who we mentioned it last week with Maria and Leslie that the Liberals had dropped this video of Andrew Scheer arguing against same-sex marriage 15 years ago. And the Conservatives were trying to brush it off as, oh, that was then. It's a settled issue now. And then they disappeared. And no one heard from Scheer in eight days until he came to a press conference and just said, Conservative government is not going to open this debate. And when they asked if a Conservative MP would be allowed to bring a motion forward, he said, well, it's our policy to let people vote their conscience and a Conservative government will not open this debate, which didn't answer anyone's questions. Yeah, I, I mean, the way I read that is private members' bills wouldn't be killed, but the prime minister and his cabinet w won't vote for them? It was unclear. <laughs> it was an effort to try to clear the air, and it just kept the story alive. Like, he may as well have just stayed in the dark, except I think it was in the last day or two the Liberals started harping on it even harder with the, where's Sheer? Why hasn't he come out? And here's what we got. The other thing I missed in his actual comments that were circulated last week is he made some weird analogy to a dog where a tail is not a fifth leg. How many legs would a dog have if you counted the tail as a leg? The answer is just four. Just because you call a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And people ask if he still holds that view. And he just says, you know, many people at the time expressed views on each side of this issue. The issue is settled. My personal view is every Canadian has the same equality rights under the law. He's bad at this. He didn't bring up milk, though. <laughs> Good, I guess. But yeah, that, that's the thing that really stands out is just how bad Sheer is at this. And the Conservatives are always going to get this line of attack. And like one of the things he said in the press conference is, oh, this is just the Liberals go into their, you know, bringing up divisive social... I, I'm not sure the exact quote, but basically along the lines of, oh, the Liberals are just bringing this up to Stratum SNC Lavalin. And yeah, they kind of are, but it also kind of works. And not only that, it's such a classic liberal playbook 
when it comes to the Conservatives, that Sheer should know it's coming and have had a counter to this prepared like a year and a half ago. That the fact that he's struggling to hit basic talking points on this eight days after somebody posted the video is is not great. This is Stockwell Day level going after him. Like maybe he'll try to distract us by jumping around on a sidu and we'll have that fun again. But no, it's what they should know is coming. And the other round of stories in the last week for the Conservatives that went pretty poorly were around how Campaign Life Coalition, the anti-choice group, is mobilizing and starting to do things a bit behind the scenes. So for the longest time, they've had on their website a voting record of every MP and most provincial politicians as well. And they get a green light if they're anti-choice and a red light if they're pro-choice and a yellow if they're unclear. So most liberals and new Democrats are red, some conservatives are green, and so forth, which is a great tool to know who, as a pro-choicer, I don't want to support. But they apparently took that down following some of the stories from last week about Elections Canada, because they didn't want to come off as too partisan. I mean, if they're not actually spending $500 or more to promote that, they wouldn't actually have to worry about that. But maybe they're planning something big. And it sounds like they have been active in lobbying individual MPs and candidates. So if there is mobilization. I recall they made a bunch of noise during the uh, leadership race that made Andrew Scheer leader. And also at the last convention for the Conservatives, because they, I think, got two of the three motions or something they wanted passed. Not a full, like, the Conservatives will open the abortion debate. They didn't get that, but they got some, you know, Conservatives are not happy about spending foreign aid on abortions and things like that. So... It's a justifiable weight, I think, hanging around the Conservatives' neck, these regressive social issues. And I think they're not solving, answering them because a lot of them just believe them and value the social conservative base they have. And maybe they're worried they'll go to Maxime Bernier. Yeah, so so that is definitely one of the things. If you actually look at how the Conservatives have played things since Bernier split off to form his own party... It's pretty clear that they're more afraid of having a new party permanently establish itself to their right than they are of losing this election, which, knowing the history of the party, is probably a justified fear, but it has also made them lean a lot harder into this stuff. And the other thing I think this reveals, circling back a little bit to the debate stuff, is just how much that winning a internal party race does not mean you're good at winning broader nationwide races. And Sheer is showing up pretty unprepared for it and doesn't really seem to have a way of speaking to anyone who isn't already a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. Yeah, it's going to be rough. And yeah, in fact, if Trudeau hadn't had a giant scandal hanging over him for the past seven months now, it probably would not have been the case that he'd be anywhere near winning this election. Well, one thing that might make the job harder for every political party here in British Columbia is a new ruling this afternoon from the Privacy Commissioner that federal parties have to follow our provincial privacy laws. So parties are famous for not being subject to the laws they write on privacy stuff because they like to be able to collect a lot of data campaign. It makes it a lot easier. Yes. But the BC Commissioner found that federal parties actually do have to follow the rules, and at least here in BC. And this all stems from a complaint that was filed in April 2018 when Jade Meetsin was touring the country, and a couple people from the Courtney Alberni riding 
got uh, unsolicited messages to come out to see Jade meet Singh and like, how does the NDP have my number? What's up with this? And filed a complaint with the BC Privacy Commissioner, who today released a report that said, no, they actually were out of line here and need to follow provincial privacy laws. Which in this case means they at least need to answer the individual's questions of how did you get my information? Who have you given it to? What are you doing with it? What information do you have? Can you delete it all? Yeah, and I believe there, you know, so there's a requirement in the BC uh, laws to attain consent. Now, usually it's hidden somewhere in a click wrap agreement or something, but there at least needs to be some way they got permission to collect this data and use it. And so I believe this is probably a complaint-driven process still, and so it won't immediately hit all the parties, but it doesn't take much to complain like if you get a text from one Sarah about voting conservative. Although that one, just based on how many people have gotten it, it's, I think, pretty clear at this point that they're just going through every number in Canada testing it. So I'm not, I'm not sure you can really file a complaint on that one, at least under the privacy rules. It's still annoying as hell, but unfortunately, anti-spam legislation also doesn't cover our political parties because, for very obvious reasons, they wrote themselves out of that. One other interesting element in this case is there are a number of interventions or submissions to inform the commissioner's ruling, the most notable of which was from the Attorney General of British Columbia, one David Eby, who happens to be a member of the federal party, being a member of the provincial party. But as the Attorney General, he has the duty to represent the province of BC's best interests. So as far as I can read between the lines, his submission seems to have argued for the you know, paramountcy of BC's privacy law being enforced should it be determined it needs to cover political parties. And that came down to what the federal NDP's counterargument was, was, well, there's a federal privacy law and there's provincial privacy law. And federal one will take precedent over the provincial ones where they're otherwise the same or would treat us the same because Canada is bigger, essentially. It's more supreme than the provinces. And I think the privacy commissioner, I need time to go through the report a little bit more detailed, but gets around that argument with some of the attorney general's arguments by basically saying they're different enough and this covers enough extra ground that it's worth us applying in this case. So behave yourself, federal political parties. Of note, none of them have yet. So this isn't a pox on the NDP. It is a pox on all their houses. I mean, the NDP is doing bad. I'll, I'll admit that, but everyone is doing bad. <laughs> So this is almost certainly going to get appealed for judicial review, so it's it's not a done deal yet, but it's going to be interesting to see how the parties respond to this during the election and what other complaints or enforcement actions might arise. So the only other thing I put in for the federal election, and I don't even know if we really want to talk about it, but it's come up this last week, is that most of the parties have released their slogans for the election. Faithful political followers will remember the NDP's 2015 campaign slogan, Change That's Ready, which is one of Mulcair's most inspiring moves. <laughs> that's a little kind of overcompensating a bit for the NDP's not ready. Well, and they got scooped by the liberals who came out like a couple days later with real change. Which is a little better. A little better, and apparently I mean, it, it worked. Dog Trudeau just a bit. Every time he didn't implement real change. There's a new book out this week that apparently Trudeau's done 93% of his promises. Hmm. I've only seen the headlines. I think it's like a Paul Wells book or one of those talking uh, heads. Aaron Rury, I think. 
Ah, that would make sense. So the slogans this year, the liberals have announced that they're going to be choose forward. Which all I can think of, and I'm not the only one who's pointed this out, is the uh, Simpsons, Kane and Kodos moment with the, uh, we need to go forward, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and twirling, twirling towards freedom. Well, the Greens have one-upped the Liberals on that then by going, not left, not right, forward, together. Which is quintessentially green. And I think that was also like the PEI Greens slogan or one other... Well, they I did, think I've seen they it did somewhere well else. in that election. Like, it, it's not the worst thing to borrow from. The conservatives have announced that they're going to be. It's time for you to get ahead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the NDP haven't announced theirs. It's going to be released on a TV ad in the next week. But they have said it's not going to be on your side, which they've used recently, or a new deal for people, which was the name of their platform that they released a couple months ago. So look for that on televisions if you still have one of those and a cable subscription, I guess. It's going to be a debate between, I guess, going forward and getting ahead. Again, an awful election. Moving on to segment two, AMA. Ask me anything. Or I guess that should be AU for ask us anything. Anyway, we put out uh, on Twitter earlier uh, and in our patron Slack. People had any questions for us. And uh, we got a bunch of responses. So we're going to go through some of them, starting with Keith Poor asking us about the upcoming federal election and what do you think the main issues will be in this election in BC and in Canada? Climate, luckily, to some extent, especially here in British Columbia. Pipelines are the ones I... And whether we're doing any enough on it, whether we need to do more, fight over that. Affordability, I think, is going to be the other big one. Yeah, the Conservatives are going to want it more on economic issues and is the economy and jobs doing well. Conservatives are also going to want to talk ethics. I think the NDP will want to talk ethics. I don't see won't. that really like landing here, maybe outside of uh, Vancouver Dranville, just because of the uniqueness of that race. Other than that, I think the Liberals will try to spin the issues around continuing the work they're doing on climate and balancing the economy and growing the middle class and those who want to join it and all of that. The NDP and Greens are going to be struggling to make it about the Liberals not doing enough, wanting to go further on climate and jobs. And the Conservatives are going to want to say, look, you have an unethical group that needs put out. They're damaging the economy with these taxes. Change things up. It's going to be a bit of a harder sell. So their main anti-tats pushes on the carbon tats, which we've had here for, what, 11 years now. I think it's going to be a bit hard to fear monger about that in BC. Well, let's move to the next one from W. Ross White, who asks, what do you think the top priority for each parties will be to extract in a power-sharing agreement in a minority-slash-coalition-slash-power-sharing situation if they held the balance of power? I think for the Greens, for sure, and probably the NDP, I would be electoral reform. And I think both have put down, implement it, referendum later. I don't know if the Greens and NDP agree on the same system. NDP are pretty big on MMP. I don't actually know what the federal Greens' preferred system is. Probably do a citizens' assembly. And yeah, go forward. I, they just say proportional representation anytime they talk about it. So that's a giant fill in the blank. I think the Greens and NDP will both also ask for significant action on climate. So taking what the part what the Liberals have already done and turning it to eleven, which I think is fair and warranted. I suppose the block is the other one we have to think about because they still have seats and are 
not really relevant anymore, but might be, depending on how things shake out and how the vote splits. For that, it's obviously more stuff for Quebec, but that's what it always is. Yeah, the NDP is also ruled out working with the Conservatives, assuming they hold to that. It's going to be, you know, the rainbow without blue coalition. I'm feeling more like it's an inevitable Trudeau majority, though, especially as sheer tanks in, in Ontario, in which case we don't need to worry about this question that much. It's really going to come down to if there's another shoe to drop on SNC-Lavalin, I think, on that one. And who knows, with Jody Wilson-Raybould's book coming out next month or so, soonish. I, I, there, there may be another shoe to drop there. Fair Vote Vancouver asks, besides proportional representation, which is a given, of course, uh, when you face emoji, uh, what is the most critical electoral reform or democratic improvement needed in Canada? One thing that's that I'm thinking more about for a variety of reasons is at the federal level, it's almost too easy to mess around with the standing orders. You get a majority government, you play around with them. In British Columbia, they don't really change. Now, it's the same rule that you just need a majority of MLAs to change them, but we generally don't change them in BC. Now, they're already pretty tilted in the favor of whoever's in government in BC that you don't need to change them because you just get into government, you say, well, these work, we're going to keep them. But when they do change, as far as I can tell, they try to go towards a consensus, at least of the House leaders. And if we could get the federal system a bit more towards that, so there aren't quick changes like we saw in the Bill C-14 debates around assisted dying, Trudeau changed rules to kind of stimmy debate after he had initially been like, we're going to have all the debate. So making a bit harder to change the rules of debate so that they don't always favor the government could do something good, especially if it can be done in a way that gives opposition members more voices in committee that aren't just obstructionism, but substantive. That's my first one. This Big is a one, wonky question, yes. so I'm going to give you a wonky answer. My wonky answer would have to be the party discipline in Canada. It's far too strong. We're the outlier in Westminster countries when it comes to just how centralized control is in the leader's office. We definitely would have seen more internal caucus pushback and quite possibly an ouster of a prime minister over SNC-Lavalin. And I mean, Harper probably wouldn't have lasted all his time if there was... Actually, maybe he would have. He did keep it pretty iron. The point is, MPs basically don't really have much of a role and ability to insert any influence or even vote really outside how the party wants to. Uh, some of the other week actually put together a data set on how often MPs broach with their parties. And like the Mavericks in the House of Commons, you know, your Michael Chaunter, Nathaniel Erskine Smiths voted like 99... 95. 90, like the 95 to 99 range. They were the outliers on how often they broke with their party. And because of it, MPs actually aren't able to influence policy very much. You know, the people we sent to Ottawa in theory to make all laws basically just are mouthpieces for their party leader. And I think that actually hurts the legislative function quite a bit. I think the easiest way to solve that would be double the number of MPs. Very popular solution. That, that would help a bit. But as long as you need the leader to sign off a set of nomination papers, there's always the, well, you're not coming back here after next election if you displease me. So that one, I think you also need to change. What would have been one big step in the right direction it ended up being a very small step was the Reform Act before it got watered down. So maybe bringing that back in its 
unwatered-down version would be helpful. I think the other answer on this question for democratic reform is the Senate. The changes Trudeau brought in with creating essentially a majority independent caucus are still shaking themselves out, and it's not clear if that's going to be good or bad. But at a very basic level, the unelected nature of the Senate still raises some ires for me. Like, the purpose of it was to protect the gentry. Like, the reason you have to have land worth $5,000 in it was because it was meant to protect landowners back in the day from the mobs. So it's better than that now and is now trying to give more voices to people who aren't necessarily heard in the legislature. But it's still not great. It's better in the House of Lords, I think. But, you know, we need to, I think, get, if we're going to keep it, better structures around or more written down structures around the bill. You know, what's the process? Does the House of Commons always defeat the Senate on like second or third try, which is the case in the UK? Or can our Senate hold up a bill indefinitely? And they've also killed private members' bills effectively. So there's still issues with the Senate. Yeah, that's a good one. The, the final one I'll touch on, which I think has been kind of brought to the forefront over this past year is, and you touched on this a bit too, is the role of committees. And this also ties in with the very strong party discipline, but we've seen in a majority government, committees basically shut down any attempts to hold the party in power accountable. And in theory, you know, the thing you learn in civics class is that the legislature is supposed to hold the executive accountable, and that just doesn't really happen in our system. Well, moving from a wonky question to an even wonkier one we got by DM, do you see the current federal government as an effective government, however you define that? And if not, what would an effective government look like in the Canadian parliamentary context? So not some utopian world. And could there even ever be a quote unquote effective government in our system? Uh, So I think ironically, the fact that we actually have very strong party discipline does in some ways make the government more effective because if you win an election, you can basically push through whatever you want. And the liberals haven't necessarily been the greatest at stick handling legislation through the parliamentary process. That was even before they introduced a bunch of wild cards into the Senate in terms of the independent senators. So from that perspective, they're overall just because of our system, it's fairly effective. The less effective parts are more kind of how they handle things internally. And then there's just basic limitations on like how effective any government program can be. By and large, this government's more or less being able to push through the changes it wants and in a bunch of cases seen results. An effective democracy could be seen as a government delivering what the majority wants within constitutional limits so that we're not trampling the rights of minorities. And in that case... Our system is sometimes really good and sometimes really bad. Our country was really slow to do quote-unquote controversial things. So assisted dying has generally had 70-plus percent support for years, and it took the Supreme Court of Canada to bring that in. Same-sex marriage did come in democratically after the courts kind of went, that's your job, and so it was another slower fight. There's strong support for action on climate change. There's, I think, a poll out this week showing showing people would support higher taxes on the rich and we're sometimes avoiding doing those. So there's some places where our legislators get captured by a minority voice, whether it's business, 
religious lobby, or some group that is organized and vocal, and they can have more influence than uh, the mob. Yeah, that's a classic problem in political economy is, you know, the concentrated benefits or costs almost always lead to better organization and influence than diverse costs or benefits. And I don't think we've solved that question or have a good answer. I think any democracy has solved that question. I think Dave Moscrop, who we've had on the show multiple times and good friend of the show, his work on deliberative democracy and others, obviously, is a good start for how we can do that better and work that in and improve upon our system, and that's where I'd go. So find ways to engage more people, maybe draw people at lot onto citizens' assemblies, that kind of stuff. Okay, moving on. Next question is, how likely is it that the lobbying efforts by the mayor's council, for people not from Vancouver, that's the local Metro Vancouver Council of Mayors, uh, will be successful in convincing all the federal parties to implement a consistent transit funding slash AKA congestion relief fund? So, so people in Metro Vancouver have probably been seeing a bunch of Facebook ads and stuff put out by the mayor's council. I know at least I have, but that also just might be the algorithm Metro targeted me. You're exactly the market for that. <laughs> so the election's a good time for this campaign, for the mayor's council, and for getting more transit funding. And I think we will see announcements for that. Will they get all the parties is where I'm getting hooked, you know, hung up on. Will the Conservatives throw money down for a Broadway subway line? I struggle Probably, to see. I, I'm just thinking about this. The Broadway subway line will run through Vancouver East, Vancouver Granville, and Vancouver Quadra, none of which the Conservatives are likely to win. So they're probably not going to voice support for that. Maybe something in North Shore and whatnot, but I mean, the people they're probably going to try and convince probably aren't regular transit riders. At least that's not the core demographic they'd really be targeting. So it's probably not likely they'd be going for it. I th- the Liberals, I can see wanting to fund a bunch of projects, but not necessarily establish a funding formula going forward. So of the three ridings I mentioned, they want to hold one, recapture one, and I don't know, stare Jenny Kwan a bit. Because it's going to be a tough hill on uh, Vancouver East to win. So they'll be happy to throw money at the Broadway subway. Although, depending on where the station is at Arbutus, it might not actually enter Vancouver Quadra. Arbutus is Quadra. It's the boundary. Oh, yeah. Which side of the road it is. Uh, so. so that's a hyper-local wonky question on that. But yeah, when it comes to a bunch of other stuff, I'm, they'll probably throw money at the um, studies about rapid transit to the North Shore. I think they'd be very smart to promise to fund the... Um, gondola to SFU. Surrey's always a popular place to contest votes. So like, I, I could see them wanting to throw a lot of money around. I'm just not sure they'll really go for the consistent funding model or a congestion relief fund. Yeah, that's not good electoral pocketbook politics because, you know, we will have a consistent funding formula for transit isn't the same as hey, voters in this riding, we will deliver you a SkyTrain station. We will have a ceremony to cut that ribbon. It just is better optics. Sorry to be disappointing. Maybe I'll be wrong. Ken Thompson on Twitter asks, what will be the most interesting BC races to watch in October? And he's got related questions that we can spin off from there. Uh, so, well, I'm just going to cut right to the related question. Vancouver Granville is obviously the big one. His follow-up question was, what are our predictions? I honestly have no idea. It's a complete wild card. It can literally go any one of like three or four different ways. 
So I, I'm not going to throw down a prediction there. But that one's going to be an interesting one to watch. I would say Victoria is going to be a big one. The Greens, I think, have a very good chance of picking that one up. They came in second place last time. The Greens are ascendant. The MP, uh, Murray Rankin's retiring. The NDP isn't doing so hot nationally. That one's going to be interesting, as will Nanaimo, mostly because I want to see if they're, that by-election was a fluke or if it's going to be a lasting green hold. In Metro Van, Burnaby North will be interesting to see if Terry yes. Beach holds his riding or if Sven Robinson picks it up or how the Greens perform. They're putting up a strong candidate. There's going to be some interesting races in Surrey, but I don't know them offhand. Probably the North Shore could be a bit competitive. John Wilkinson uh, is a fisheries minister, but might face a tough challenge from the Conservatives, for example. Yeah, because that, that one was actually held by Andrew Satstein up until 2015. The Conservatives are definitely going to make a play for that one. I think the Liberals also picked up a seat in Kelowna in the yeah, last election. Yeah, that's that'll be the be one I was going to mention, which is there's this one spot of red in the center of the province that's going to be interesting to see if they can hold that. Skeena Bulkley Valley might be interesting, as Nathan Cullen that, has. That's the one with the conservative candidate who's the tattoo artist for the human skull, right? Who, yeah, who bought her boyfriend a human skull. Yes, okay, that, that one's going to be interesting. That that's already interesting. <laughs> yes. The Liberals picked up a lot of ridings that are like just outside Metro Vancouver, like past Hope and up on Sea to Sky Country, that could be battlegrounds for the Conservatives. Looking around the province, yeah, where the Greens have the chance to pick up a couple other ridings will be interesting to watch. It's definitely in the capital region around Victoria and the island, I think. So that's what I'll be watching for. And my thoughts on Vancouver Granville is I think Jody Wilson-Raybould has a slight edge right now, but, you know, an election can change anything. Ken also asks, what are the conditions under which each party leader remains as leader versus leaves as leader? If Trudeau doesn't remain prime minister, I don't see a path for him to stay as leader unless it's a very narrow... Yeah, if it's a very narrow minority minority situation or if he can if there's a basically a hun parliament he'll hold on if there's a minority where there's a where it's a decent plurality of the seats are liberal he'll probably hold on as they go into minority government especially because the ndp will almost certainly back him in that scenario so he'd remain prime minister then and and leader too for the rest of the yeah i think elizabeth may is pretty much going to hold on until she either leaves or dies yeah when she doesn't want to be leader she'll not be leader until yeah. then she is the green party although they they should seriously think about after the election swapping her out for any like good confident alternative they should be looking to swap out just because i think she's i mean she's been around forever and really has not been able to leverage that one seat for very much their proportion of the popular vote has gone down in almost every election where she's been leader yeah it was three and a half percent in the last election. So she will probably hold on. Maybe she shouldn't. And then for Jagmeetson, if his seat count, or maybe even the popular vote count, is lower than the last election, which is quite likely at this point, mostly because that was the NDP's second highest seat count ever. So, you know, it's a fairly high watermark, and they're not doing so hot right now. But yeah, that, that'll be it, I think, is if he loses seats. And same thing with Shear. If, if Shear doesn't grow the conservative seat count, he's gone too. I think Singh might have a little bit more grace from his party. They did stab Mulcair pretty quickly in the back. But I think the offer from Mulcair was different than the offer from Singh. Singh promised a renewal and a shift to 
I guess he also promised just to be the like Instagram leader who could take on the Instagram prime minister, and that's not panned out. But there might be some hope there that he's, you know, a longer term rebuilding. I mean, if the seats are cut in half, that's not tenable. So he might be out no matter what. Sheer, I think that's it. He can lose the election, but if he grows the seat count, that affords him some time. Especially if he pushes Trudeau into a minority. But any other situation is really tough. And Maxime Bernier is going to want to leverage the 49.5% of the party that voted for him only a couple years ago. But that's actually the other interesting twice. So if Scheer loses seats, Bernier doesn't win any seats on his, or maybe even he just holds his, does he enter the race to replace Andrew Scheer? Depends what he has to do to get his Conservative Party membership back and what the rules are there. So there'll be lots of politics to follow up in the fall after the election, because almost assuredly we won't have this same cast going into whatever election is after 2019, which could be another 2019 election but probably not. 20, uh, it'd have to be a really high parliament for them to be back at the polls. Yeah, like the earliest turnaround would basically be a December election if nobody can form a government. Well, and one thing that might impede that is the NDP saying they wouldn't support Scheer and Ken wants to also know, because he squeezed a lot of questions in, if that was a good move for the NDP or not. So historically, it's... parties in Canada don't pre-announce who they would or wouldn't work with and... Often they just say, we're running to be government, so we don't even think about coalitions, which is a lie. Yeah, so in some ways this is a decent short-term move in that it shores up the base and whatnot. But at the same time, there's two things wrong with it. One of it is it ties their hands post-election. They aren't able to do as much, or they take a bit much bigger hit if they do kind of change things up a bit uh, on how they approach the post election time you know maybe they get a really good concession from sheer on some things that that's enough for them to you know supply and confidence or you know at least get them over the first uh throne speech and whatnot but then they'd be facing a backlash from from their voters it would be tougher for them this also concedes more or less that they're not really vying for government which i mean that's realistic but it's not the thing you're supposed to say i think that's the bigger issue with it uh one thing i saw on Twitter when people were mulling this question in the last week or so is the reality that in countries with proportional representation where you have more parties, parties will often say, these are the people we would look to create an alliance with. These are the ones we definitely wouldn't because everyone knows they're not getting a clear majority. So giving your voters a bit of a sense of what kind of party they'll work with tells you a lot about their values and what are the red lines. Because, you know, if you have a party in the Italian elections who are like, we're not going to work with the fascists and nationalists who are in this legislature. That's nice to know as someone who doesn't like fascists and nationalists. I'm not saying the conservatives are, but it's clear for the NDP that they're not going to work with Scheer. And I think that does boost the base when they've been struggling to connect with their base. So point there, we just need proportional representation in Canada so we can just have more normal politics that the rest of the world experiences, and not this. Everyone thinks they're winning. Anyway, we'll find out if it was a good move on October 22nd. That's my answer. And uh, final question from Van Culler, or at least final question on the federal election stuff, is Van Culler alumnus Tamara Tatert has been playing for TV with a lot of FaceTime in the public. 
this summer, including speaking at a public hearing at Vancouver City Hall to counter incumbent MP Don Davies. Do you think the Liberal Party stealing Vancouver Kinsway from the NDP? That's a tough one. That's a really tough one. Don Davies has been annoying a lot of people, including New Democrats, with his basically nimbyism towards Vancouver Council. And I think he did some anti-vax stuff that was also super disappointing. So an anti-vax, it was definitely healthcare pseudoscience stuff. He has been the MP there since 2008, when the previous MP in 2006 was Liberal David Emerson, who infamously crossed the floor to join the first Conservative government. And it's been New Democrats since. In 2017, he got 45, almost 46% of the vote to the Liberals' 28%. It's still a tough climb for the Liberals. It's not impossible, but I would put it in a safe NDP seat still. It's def- I, it got more interesting, I think, that ele- that riding election after Tamara Tater showed up at City Hall and the two of them started wading into local zoning issues, mostly because of how unusual that is and how they, like, they clearly see interesting advantages in going into that direction. So yeah, I'm watching it one. I've heard a lot of good things about Tamara Tater, like that she, she may be up to the campaign on this one and she'd be a, the type of person who'd be able to take the seat. But like you said, there's a lot of structural stuff that makes it seem like it's going to be a NDP hole. She'd be a great candidate in Vancouver Granville. Just saying. But let's move to the provincial questions. There's only a couple of these. Kaylin Harris asks, what are our thoughts on the surprising difficulties in the negotiations between the BCTF and the provincial government? He says NDP. So the background on this is the teachers are one of the last public sector unions to sign a deal with the government. Everyone's been going through negotiations over the last couple of years, and the NDP have been pretty strict that they only want to give 2% increases per year for the next three years. And they've been getting those. And they all have these Me Too clauses where if one union gets more than 2%, everyone gets more than 2%. So they're increasingly incentivized not to give anyone extra. There are little ways around that, like changing salary grids and stuff. So it's or adding extra bonuses for this. And that's helped make it work. But the teachers are the historically most militant union in BC, in contemporary BC. We're not going to talk about the miners back in the day. Their collective agreement expired June 30th. They've just gone to mediation. That's going to take about eight days. There's no plans to for either side to block the school year starting, which I guess is the good news for parents and people wanting to go to school and teach. I think this difficulty just stems from the fact that teachers feel like they've been treated like shit for 16 years by BC Liberals, and now they want to make up for it. Like, they won Supreme Court of Canada rulings that their contracts were torn up unconstitutionally, and now they feel like their friends are in power and want some payback. On the flip side, I think it's actually reassuring to a lot of people that that friendship actually isn't mean and just giving away the farm on everything here, and... With that 2%, everything goes haywire on the provincial finances thing. It's probably good the NDPs hold in line. Well, the other element of it is because of those Supreme Court rulings reasserting essentially old provisions of the contract, there is a lot of fine print to negotiate. Things relating to class size and composition, things referring to medical diagnoses that were used 15 years ago that aren't politically correct now or wouldn't be used in a contract today 
and going through those with the best newest science about and pedagogy about what it takes to teach a child with special needs takes time to figure out and there's different opinions on there that are probably reasonably both valid and finding a middle ground is just going to take time it's a good sign that everyone seems to be moving along they're negotiating a bit in public which is weird but there's no big threats yet i've seen from either side so that's promising but that's one of those sleeper issues we haven't talked enough about i don't think because it's really hard to know what the story is other than no deal has been signed and no walkouts or lockouts have happened yet so yeah keep your eye on it through the fall and Randall prashad asks any thoughts on what the heck is this and it links to a tweet showing the BC director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims, in a queen from Snow White costume in front of a mirror that has uh, the face of the premier on it. And then a bunch of other mirrors off to the side. It's weird. It's bizarre. It's supposed to be this protest thing. And my reaction is just, what? The joke, the, the thing here that Chris is going for is on the... And this is related to the fuel inquiry, the gas prices. Chris is arguing, you want to know who's to blame for high gas prices, John Horgan? Look in the mirror, it's you. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation also got 503 handheld mirrors delivered to the BC legislature mail clerk who accepted them as things the MLAs can look in the mirror to find out. And I don't know how much that prank is costing taxpayers to process, but you know, irony isn't dead. Canadian Taxpayers Federation has a penchant for stunts. stunts and this is another. Uh, full credit for the costume. It looks great. It actually does. It's a really good cosplay. So that's nice. Otherwise, tomorrow the BCUC inquiry should be wrapped up and releasing its report. We'll start to hear about why the BCUC thinks gas prices are so high. Now, of course, they're not investigating the taxes that the province can put on. But as we've pointed out, those are very clear how much those cost. Yeah, in fact, there's stickers on every gas pump I've ever gone to in the province that says exactly how much the taxes are. Not as good as the Ontario stickers, though. Well, That's they're, a separate they're, well, thing. Well, they're better in the sense that they aren't hacky uh, political cheap shots. Well, let's switch to our last couple of questions on more personal stuff. So Mackenzie Lockhart says, has the prospect of experience Banding his family changed any of Ian's views toward policy. He's thinking specifically of housing and transit policy where people with kids experience them very differently than those without. Ask me in three years. For now, I'm mostly really concerned about how fast childcare BC is rolling out. The answer is not fast enough. We're good for 18 months, but if I can get into a $10 a day space in 18 months, that'd be awesome. I mean, I was supportive of the program before, but now it's just personally vested. (laughs) I think otherwise I've largely supported an accessible urban system that is family friendly. The one thing that we have noticed is people on the SkyTrain are dicks who don't look up from their phones to notice when a pregnant person is standing there might possibly needing a seat. So if you're listening to this on the train, maybe look up right now and see if someone around you needs a seat and don't be an ass. Seems reasonable. I mean, this question's directed at you, and I am not at that point in my life, so don't really have any more insight other than I'll point out that there are plenty of people who make the urban situation work with kids. I'm 
you know, our friend Adrian's raising five kids in a condo. So like it, it can work and people all over the world in a bunch of different cities do it and don't really see why that why parenthood would change it a bit. Mm. We need more parks. I've noticed where parks are not and we need more parks with playground equipment. They are good things. That's changed. Yeah, well, you do live in Burnaby, and they do have a billion-dollar fund. Some of which is going to new parks. Yeah, they they can build a bunch of parks with that money, among other things. A friend of the pod, Michael Spratt, asks, Hey, Ian, here's my AMA question. Are you ready to be a sleep-deprived zombie? Yes. I have booked off eight weeks of work and some amount of off of podcasting, at least a month, probably more, and have basically just cleared my calendar for September, and it's going to be that. I know it's going to be more than eight weeks, but we're going to start there. It's what we signed up for. Finally, Jesse Woodward, also past guest and friend of the show, says, what are we going to do without the ambrosia voice of Mr. Bushfield? We're going to have some guests, guest co-hosts. We're still working them out. There will be lots of people coming into a rotating cast, but the podcast will be delivered on a weekly basis. Yep, we're going to keep this going. Like nothing's changed pretty much other than the voices will sound slightly different and may have some new and interesting perspectives. That was a lot of questions. Yes. That was fun, too. Let's do that again sometime. Uh, I know Shannon Waters has said she'd be in for doing an AMA on BC Ledge stuff, so we'll definitely line that up. Send us your questions, podcast at politicos.ca, hit us on Twitter, anywhere else. But let's now go into quick takes to wrap up this show. The first piece of news came out of the States that Johnson & Johnson is getting slapped with $572 million in penalties from an Oklahoma judge for fueling the opioid crisis. And this is news here in British Columbia because David Eby has sued the pharma companies for the ex- pretty much the exact same thing. And it's nice to know sometimes these lawsuits can work. So he was a very happy man this week. There's no guarantee we'll win. There's no guarantee we'll get the same amount of money. And there's no guarantee how fast it will take. But one case is a good start. Yeah, it doesn't set a precedent. Court decisions in other jurisdictions can be looked at and viewed in a not legally binding but informative way. Well, and it shows the strategy isn't entirely futile, which is a promising start. Uh, moving on to our next quick take, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union of Canada uh, wants to make port automation a federal election issue. So we didn't talk about this a month or two ago when they nearly went on strike because the strike was announced and cleared up between episodes. So we didn't revisit it. But it was over the same issue of uh, automation and we didn't touch on it then. So I wanted to bring it up now that they're trying to make it a major election issue. And honestly, I'm not that supportive of the let's try and stop automation. So... They have a report out. It suggests between 6,000 and 10,780 jobs could be eliminated depending on whether a substantial amount or a complete amount of automation takes place at our ports. Their solution is for party leaders to commit to implementing some kind of penalties to discourage eliminating these jobs, whether that's just penalties for canceling jobs or literally taxing hours that machines quote-unquote work instead of humans. And I get where they're coming from. Port jobs are well-paying, good benefits, nice and secure. But at the same time, keeping jobs that don't need to exist around is not the future I want. Yeah, imagine if we like still had buddy whip makers around because we never 
got past the horse and buggy as there, because we didn't want to lose those jobs. Or I think maybe a more salient example is the fact that less than 2% of Canadians work in agriculture rather than 90% of Canadians work in agriculture is a huge benefit to society. All the, all the people who work in that one field now do a whole bunch of other things. We're a lot more productive, wealthier as a country. And as we get more productive, like it just generally helps the economy and everyone in general benefits from it. Also, like the productivity growth in Canada has been crappy for decades now. Like The last thing we should be trying to do is stop productivity growth in the few areas it's happening. Now, I do think we need party leaders to address automation thoughtfully and smart. And that's not to endorse this report in any way. I think what instead we need to do is recognize that one of the big challenges facing us right now is the growth of precarity in work, the growth of jobs that pay less, you don't have secure hours, Uber drivers is not a career, and you're going to be eliminated anyway by automation. And so managing that and getting us to a place where maybe we have a basic income, maybe we have different kinds of supports. The future that Keynes and others, economists, 100 years ago were imagining was one where we kept working less. But we kind of stopped at 40 hours and then like started increasing a little. Let's drive that number down. I want to see a party leader come out with the like 30-hour workweek pledge. I work 32 hours a week. It's great. Not counting podcasting. <laughs> But like those, those are the kind of solutions I think we need to be talking about and getting towards, coupled with supporting innovation and automation because work sucks. And if we can get less people doing it and get machines doing it, it gets done better, gets done more efficiently, and we can all go drink and have fun. Fully automated luxury case based <laughs> communism. What's so hard about this? I think it's also worth pointing out, I'm going to use American numbers just because I'm more familiar with them at the moment, but like right now the unemployment rate is pretty much rock bottom in the States and like they're doing just as much automation, if not more than us. And like, it doesn't show up in the actual job numbers at the moment. So there's a lot of stuff where it's just a case of does the economy support full employment and are you then able to invest, hire people at more money, which when there's a shortage of labor there that that happens and it absolutely spurs people to invest in higher productivity stuff and i think it's more important that the general economy is humming along at a good level where there's a lot of demand for people to work and work in the most productive way possible rather than just have jobs for the sake of having jobs there's a great book out there bullshit jobs i haven't actually read it but i've heard the author do a number of podcast interviews and it's just like chef's kiss stuff most jobs are bullshit yeah also the jobs guarantee thing that it's talked about a favorite in American politics is a bad idea for that exact reason. Agreed. Let's go from the challenges of automation to the challenges of climate change and those who aren't super keen on doing anything about it. Doug Ford is going to the Supreme Court of Canada to challenge the carbon tax once more after the Ontario Court of Appeal found that Justin Trudeau has the power to enact it. Yeah, so we talked about this when the court ruling came out and I don't think it surprised anyone because the federal government can tax things as a pretty basic thing in our constitution that's really not controversial, despite the fact that some premiers want to make it controversial. So he's probably going to lose. But, you know, Supreme Court can be a little unpredictable, but he's probably going to lose. I think there was some question about whether he would announce this now or later 
during the election or after the election, but timing is what it is, and Doug Ford wants to scream about the carbon tax. Yeah, also, I mean, Doug Ford has a mess of a government, and any... I don't want to use the word good news story, but, like, story that rallies up his supporters is probably good for him and something he needs right about now. Well, at least he's not holding a referendum on equalization, like his friend in Alberta is going to do next year, possibly. Story for another Constitution time. Constitution does not work that way. Jason Equalization doesn't work that way. Also that. And that has been Plotos. Find links to everything we talked about at Plotos.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and listen to think. Support the show, help us keep it going while Ian's on uh, paternity leave, and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at patreon.com slash Plotos. If you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sergio Potnikoff. Thanks for listening. See you on the other side of the election. We'll probably be here for some of the debate-watching parties, maybe, and stuff. I'll do something. Yeah.